Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo within the food industry, empowering us all to make more informed choices about our health. In times like these, it's more important than ever to take care of ourselves and give back to those in our communities who work tirelessly to take care of us. That is why we are teaming up with Kind to offer our listeners 15% off for teachers, students, first responders, doctors, nurses, and more. Go to podgo.co slash kind to find out more. That's podgo.co slash kind. Let's create a kinder and healthier world. One act, one snack at a time. This is your host, Emma Newberry, who is very excited to welcome you back to All Alone with Something to Say, Season 2. Today we have a very special guest, a very special episode, and I don't want to waste one more minute, so let's get to it. very special episode. We will be talking about a topic that I think really doesn't get enough light shed on it. And I know that I was really in the dark about this until talking to our guest today, who has a very personal connection to this topic. So I would like to welcome my very good friend, Marianne Tissot. And she is half Puerto Rican, half French, and she has carved out time from studying for the MCATs to record this with me and tell us about the history of Puerto Rico, U.S. relations and what's going on on the island today and the question of statehood for Puerto Rican people. So welcome. Thank you so much, Emma. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to be able to share with everyone, you know, things that, like you said, aren't really generally known by, I guess I could say, the average American citizen. Yeah. So, and even Puerto Rican citizens um, on the island. So it was a learning process for both of us. <laughs> yeah. I introduced you as half French and half Puerto Rican, but I did want to ask you about identity and sort of how you identify yourself and what different nationalities that you have in your family and your blood mean to you. I do say I'm half French, half Puerto Rican. Technically, as a Puerto Rican, I am an American by law. However, I don't tend to introduce myself as American. It's rare to come across Puerto Ricans that introduce themselves as Americans. I think, I mean, it has to do with a lot of factors that we're going to talk about like today, but it's also because, you know, we have our own very rich history and Puerto Rican people have a lot of pride in being Puerto Rican. And so they usually are going to be the first ones to tell you where they're from. Essentially, we are American citizens who have uh, the American passport, some laws that are kind of overlap with like the laws, most of them that overlap with the laws of like the American constitution, but we have exceptions. We cannot vote for the U.S. president. So right. we have our own kind of mini local government in which we have our governor and we have our own local Senate and we have a non-voting representative in the federal Congress. We're not given the right to to vote for a U.S. president or any U.S. cabinet member. Speaking of governor, wasn't there a new governor appointed this yeah, last the, week? This week? 
Very recently, there was a new governor, Pierluisi, from one of the two major parties who was just inaugurated. It seems like there are three major positions on what the relationship should be between Puerto Rico and the U.S. And his party, the new progressive party, is pro-statehood, which means being fully incorporated into the United States. And then the popular Democratic Party is the anti-statehood. So I would call it actually, rather than saying anti-statehood, which technically it is, um, its platform is more like they want to remain as the Commonwealth. Yeah, but just as you said, the new progressive party, uh, the PNP, as we call it here in Puerto Rico, is pro-statehood, so full incorporation as a state, whereas the the Partido Popular, the popular democratic party, is pro-staying the way we are as a commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And um, the last one would be the pro-independence party, the PIP. The two most popular, I would say, would be the the PNP, the New Progressive Party, and the Popular Democratic Party. But it seems like even if the independence party in referendums doesn't get a lot of support, I know we've talked about the idea of independence being like a very romantic, inspiring idea, especially for a lot of younger people on the Mm -hmm. island. Yeah, that's definitely true. Just because it hasn't been uh, getting as many votes in some local referendums we've had or as many elected officials, it definitely shouldn't be discarded. Those three options have been the main choices regarding the status of Puerto Rico for many, many years now. It's recently been getting a lot of attention from young people. In their eyes, this is what Puerto Rico deserves, is to be, quote, freed from the clause of of the United States. I didn't quite think about this, but holding a referendum is just sort of taking the temperature of the island, seeing where people fall in these three positions. Like there was one in August of 2020 and statehood won that referendum by like a really slim margin. It was like 52% of people to 47% anti-statehood, mm-hmm. but there's no legitimation by the U.S. government that anything is going to come of any of these. Something I remember reading, I think, is that it's getting more popular to boycott these referendums because it just feels like a waste of time and sort of like buying into the system that is not even acknowledging really your right to choose what happens to you. Yeah, exactly. The movement to boycott these referendums has been growing in the eyes of many Puerto Ricans. That hasn't led too much that actually has led to a lot of destruction on the island and to more than $70 billion in debt. Yeah. And so it's it's more a vote against these two parties. There's a new party that emerged recently. It's it's called Victoria Ciudadana, Victory of the People. It's led by Alexandra Lugaro. She's young. Mm-hmm. She is really refreshing to a lot of people. And the party that she represents focuses on Puerto Rico and rebuilding Puerto Rico's economy and supporting small businesses. It has been gaining a lot of traction too, especially in the recent gubernatorial elections. Alexandra Luero got more votes than the candidate from the pro-independence party, Dalmau. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really significant because if you would put it in U.S. terms, it's a third party. It's not Republican or Democrat that makes it in to those rankings. So mm-hmm. I think that alone, even if she didn't win, it does say something of how people feel about the state of Puerto Rico at the moment. I was trying to sort of just to understand the parties. I was originally noting them down as like this one seems like it would be more like the American Democratic Party. And then this one would be more the Republican Conservative Party. And 
you were like, no, 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 it, it's not like that. You're voting for like an outward facing thing as opposed to looking inward to what is actually going on with the community. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're voting. I mean, you're voting party instead of person as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's no such thing as as Democratic candidate or Republican candidate in the in Puerto Rico, because we I mean we don't vote for the president, so there's really it's not the same. Like we said before, people don't know a lot about how Puerto Rico actually works in terms of how it relates to the U.S. And there's a reason for that, and it's because it's messy, and the government doesn't really want it to be. In I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> it's not in our history textbooks because it can't neatly be summarized into like, and then they joined the U.S. and everyone was happy and we all like shipped things back and forth. And I think one of the biggest themes that we're exploring this episode is the idea of self-determination. There's long been precedent for this kind of opportunity. It's just it hasn't actually been made available because the U.S. has kind of strong armed them into a hug and been like, you're staying with us. I'm going to stop saying like weird analogies and let you actually talk about <laughs> the history of it. <laughs> so I think personally, the best way to explain what's going on on the island in present day, it's important to look at the history um, of the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. I read this really great book called How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Imerva. U.S.-Puerto Rican relations really started in 1898, the uh, Spanish-American War. This, as they say in the book, uh, should really be called the Spanish-Cuban-Puerto Rican-Filipino-American War. That is because it was actually a war that was fought by the rebel forces within the colonies occupied by Spain um, against mm -hmm. Spanish rule. So during this time, you're seeing a lot of revolts in the colonies in, in Cuba, in Puerto Rico, in the Philippines. At the end of this war, the rebel forces really defeated the Spaniard armies, but the Spanish didn't want to admit their defeat to, to the colonials. So instead, they made this hidden deal with the Americans so that they would give away these colonies to the states. Philippines was sold for $20 million and they gave Puerto Rico and Guam for free. Like ketchup packets. They give this example, which I thought was really, you know, I think it kind of illustrated how shocking this was for the respective colonies. In the Philippines, the colonials thought they had won against the Spanish, and which they did. And so, you know, there was a celebration. They raised the Filipino flag they played the Filipino national anthem, and then to their surprise, in comes the United States taking down their flag and putting up the Star Spangled Banner instead. The U.S. had played as an ally to the rebel forces because it obviously had an interest in these um, colonies. Mm -hmm. That's where I would mark the, the beginning of U.S.-Puerto Rico relations. Puerto Rico, you know, this was... They had, already, they had already been colonized by Spain since the late 1400s. The local indigenous population with Taino became extinct under Spanish colonial rule. And here we are in the uh, Spanish-American War when basically we're fighting for in their independence, thought they obtained it, but instead were colonized by another rising imperial force. And then it seems like from what you've told me that there was sort of a statehood movement that started almost immediately after that. Right. So, I mean, the question was, at least for, for the American politicians, okay, now we have Puerto Rico, what do we do? Puerto Ricans on the island were already starting to talk about statehood, but as much as this topic of statehood was discussed on the island, it was rarely mentioned in the mainland. 
So in 1900, there were the insular cases, which I would argue are the reason why Puerto Rico is the way it is today. So these were a set of cases in the U.S. Supreme Court that basically ruled that although Puerto Rico is now part of the United States, the Constitution and American laws did not all necessarily apply to it. That's how it's phrased. So it created this loophole through which the U.S. could could essentially subject the Puerto Ricans or any other inhabitant of a U.S. territory to whatever law and whatever act or whatever order they desired. And it would still be legal through the Constitution. First Circuit Judge Juan Torruella, he was an advocate for repealing the, the insular cases, were a, a constitutional justification for the unequal treatment of Americans in the territories. It's like giving someone a health plan with no benefits on it. Yeah, exactly. And through these insular cases, there have been many um, laws and acts that have been passed that are still in effect today in Puerto Rico and that have hindered the economy of the island significantly. Like the Jones Act in 1917 is what granted basically conditional citizenship. Yeah, in 1917, Puerto Ricans were granted American citizenship because they needed Puerto Ricans to fight in the American army Mm -hmm. uh, because they believe Puerto Ricans were more immune to tropical diseases. So they would be, it would be a great benefit to have them fighting in the U.S. army. So by the end of the war, um, Puerto Ricans, you know, were now American citizens, but were still not fully incorporated. Just because they became American citizens did not mean they would receive any other rights as Americans on the mainland did. So in 1945, the UN, the United Nations, were formed, and the first charter on self-determination was also issued. Then later on in 1960, the UN issued a list of um, colonized countries that were entitled to self-determination. Under this new order, colonized countries could choose to be either independent, integrated into the empire, or be in free association with an independent state. Those are the three options that were given to colonies. Puerto Rico was on the list. However, um, funny enough, (laughs) in Mm -hmm. a couple years before, in 1952, Puerto Rico was declared a commonwealth. A commonwealth, if you translate it to Spanish, so how we call Puerto Rico in Spanish, is un estado libre asociado, a freely associated state, which was one of the three options um, Mm -hmm. that 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 colonies could decide to have as their status. Once a colony declared themselves either integrated into the state, independent, or in free association, that was it. Once they once they did that, they could not reassess, uh, at least through this order. Puerto Rico, since it was already a a freely associated state, it was the only freely associated state that existed when this UN order was implemented. Were the, all, were the only colonies of the time that weren't allowed their own referendum for self-determination. And this all lies yeah. in the hands of Congress. Um, the language in the Declaration of Decolonization, it's basically like, do you want to be this thing, this thing, or the thing that we already told you that you have to be? It's not, they never had a choice. I think you're absolutely right. The timeline is just, it's almost like, it's just a little too close to be right. <laughs> completely innocent. Puerto Rico was technically declared a commonwealth. Like, President Truman signed whatever order made that happen in 1950, but 
it took a couple of years, I think, for them to sort of work out like how the Puerto Rican constitution would work with respect to the American constitution. So it wasn't really until t- around two years later that formed officially as a commonwealth. Puerto Rico didn't have a say in this, by the way. It was this, this new um, status was imposed by the U.S. government. The U.S. government um, telling Puerto Rico, okay, now you are no, no longer a, quote, colony. You are a commonwealth, <laughs> a freely associated state. Right. You know, it's, yeah. It, it, yeah, obviously, we're not here to, to make up any, you know, <laughs> uh, what is it called? conspiracy theories or any of the sort, but when you read history and you read how things happened, it's important to be, to kind of scrutinize what you read. If you think about even just a couple of years before Puerto Rico, quote unquote, got to be a commonwealth, um, like in 1948, there was the gag law. Yeah. So this is one of the, one of the laws that was able to uh, be passed due to the insular cases to suppress any independent um, movement, any any movement uh, that was pro-independence in Puerto Rico. And it made it a crime to own or display a Puerto Rican flag, to speak or write about independence. They're enforcing things to a ridiculous degree, like you can't even own a Puerto Rican flag while also turning around and smiling to the UN and being like, we already picked for them. So like, they're fine. It's not a, it's not a pretty history. It's not something that people want to read about uh, their own country, subjecting other people to, you know, these, this injustice, basically. So now that you've given us a pretty clear summary of how the relationship between the US and Puerto Rico has sort of unfolded, um, and you mentioned that the insular cases are still in place today. We wanted to talk about some ways that that is actually affecting Puerto Rico today in terms of like recent events and also political conversations on the island. So the event that comes to mind would be September 20th, 2017. Hurricane Maria hit the island and it was one of the worst hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico in a very long time. I remember people really didn't expect it to be that terrible. I was at Bowdoin, so I was I was in Maine, but my whole family was on the island. And I remember talking to my mom during the whole, I think it was about 14 hours duration of the hurricane. My mom was with all my family, my grandparents in my grandparents' house. And they, you know, she was locked in the bathroom most of the time. And luckily she never lost phone service, but she was definitely a minority. The aftermath, you know, people didn't have electricity for six months. All the deaths that were counted were due to lack of food, lack of water, lack of available hospitals. People who were diabetic weren't able to get their insulin. A lot of poor rural communities were actually cut off from the rest of the island or at least from from San Juan, from the capital, by natural barriers. So a lot of trees Mm -hmm. that fell, flooding. I remember my local town, Dorado, it was completely flooded. So the aid from FEMA that arrived, it didn't get distributed to a lot of communities. That's where the death rate really increased. Natural disasters are disasters to a certain extent, but it really ended up being not even foreign policy disaster, but it was just like the U.S. No, really... Yeah, you're right. The lack of communication between the federal government and the local government and really, you know, 
we don't know what happened to a lot of the aid that was distributed in Puerto Rico. A lot of people choose to blame it on the local government. A lot of people decide to blame it on the federal government. But, you know, in the end of the day, we are part of the United States and people were labeled as excess deaths. When President Trump came to the island a couple weeks after the hurricane, there is a video you can find on YouTube of him throwing paper towel rolls at Puerto Ricans. Much like, you know, throwing a basketball, except, you know, I'm pretty sure he doesn't really play basketball. Yeah, it wasn't, the, the form wasn't great, I will say. As a middle school basketball um. <laughs> Um, but it was definitely a video that wasn't reassuring to Puerto Ricans at this time. Right. Um, <laughs> it's like, he comes with you have to save us. They brought paper towels. But there's also the video of the conference held between him and our governor at the time, Ricardo Rosello. And I remember President Trump was basically showing off how low the death rate was. The number that was brought up a lot was 60. And you know what? Maybe a couple of days after the hurricane, that could have been a possibility. But after a couple months, when Puerto Ricans still did not have power, the, the the power grid was completely ruined. I remember coming back here with my family a couple months after the hurricane, and we would lose power all the time still. A lot of the islands still didn't have any. This caused around 4,000 deaths. The number estimated by a Harvard study was 4,645. That was kind of the symbolic number of how much our government had failed us. All our neighbors who died um, due to the inefficient help that was provided. The loved ones of people who died in, in the aftermath left pairs of shoes of the deceased lined up in mm-hmm. front of the capital in San Juan, kind of as a as a, as a protest, but also as kind of a, a way to mourn, you know, mm-hmm. this, this um, national loss and national this loss for the island and never know, you know, national Puerto Rican loss. I feel like this is a common thread that's been coming up throughout what we've been talking about. We count Puerto Ricans as part of the U.S. when their bodies are worth something to us. They're soldiers or, you know, it's people who serve a function, but these deaths were not mourned, I believe, to the same degree, definitely not acknowledged adequately by our president at the time. It's just interesting to see when we choose to consider people part of us and then when we just leave them to die and the jones act which we talked about earlier which was passed in 1917 granting pretty much conditional citizenship to puerto rico also has an economic component to it that played a huge factor in relief efforts yeah so through this jones act an act that was passed through the loophole of the insular cases ships that come from different countries are not allowed to arrive in the in the port of San Juan without first stopping in a uh, mainland US dock and taking all the cargo out and putting it on a an American ship only then can it dock in Puerto Rico people didn't really see the the extent to which this law could really affect Puerto Rico until Hurricane Maria, when right after the hurricane, we received a lot of foreign aid and we weren't able to receive this aid right away because it had to first Mm -hmm. go, it had to be sent to the United States. And then, you know, so this really delayed a lot of the aid that we received. In previous natural disasters, it's been sort of a policy to lift the Jones Act temporarily. I grant a waiver so that you can just have the aid come through because it's obviously an emergency. And Trump refused to do it with Hurricane Maria. And then eventually 
because he had to, because there was just, it was like basically a human rights violation. He eventually waived it for a month and then didn't renew the waiver. This was definitely something that really was a detriment to our recovery process and really, I think, contributed to that death rate. It was, yeah. it was in a way, a, a wake-up call. More activists um, rose up, young, young activists. I would say that the fourth party, the Victoria Ciudadana movement, mm-hmm. uh, probably gained a lot of traction because people realized that they couldn't count on the U.S. to help yeah. them. And, uh, you know, the only people they could count on in the end was, you know, the, themselves. And that's why there's this kind of rising movement focusing on the local economy and, you know, bettering our own island, regardless of our relationship to the United States. Kind of fast forward to today. The economy is technically, it's being stifled by all these legislations. I would argue that's why, that's one of the main reasons why we're so far in debt. All the... Walgreens and Walmarts and all the, you know, all the American businesses that are established here, all the money they make, the profits they make are sent back to the mainland. So none of it gets redistributed back into the local economy. It's a way for, you know, it essentially takes money, local money from, from Puerto Rico and just kind of sends it to the mainland. When, when people say like, okay, what can the average citizen do to help Puerto Ricans? Okay, we're $74 billion in debt what can I do to help that? And so we have this hashtag um, on the island, hashtag apoya lo local. And it basically means support small businesses. I use it all the time. I am working with a, an amazing nonprofit called Friends of Puerto Rico. And the goal of this nonprofit is to stimulate the economy of the island. And to it does that by providing women and children uh, opportunities to start their own businesses through one of their programs. They basically give the um, children from um, public schools all around the island opportunities to learn basic skills to become young entrepreneurs. Our students are um, from nine years uh, and up to get a whole generation out of poverty and to advocate for a better Puerto Rico and for a better quality of life for the people here. We sell this coffee called Cafe Ama that um, it's it's locally produced in, in San Sebastián in Puerto Rico. And 100% of the funds go directly to our program for children to sponsor scholarships for these children. So mm-hmm. I'll also we can also include that in the list of businesses that you guys should check out. You said there was a wake-up call moment. I was just wondering how you think that has affected maybe younger people or your personal opinions on U.S. relations with Puerto Rico yeah. and these referendum? I would say I definitely relate with this new group of, you know, this generation that really what we want is to see change happen. People are tired of the same parties governing. There has been so much suffering that has happened on this island that people just want change. Do you think that this change should take the form of something like independence? And this change, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a pro-independence movement. Again, I think it's just wanting to focus on Puerto Rico itself. It's so much unknown, like what would happen to our passports and all those technicalities? Would we have to renounce our American citizenship? So there's just, I think, so much uncertainty um, regarding, you know, what would happen if we were to gain independence that I think independence is not as popular as 
you know, within the general part Puerto Rican population. But also, you know, I mean, I'm talking about all this, like, what if we're independent? What if we're like a state and all these things? But it's, it's important to remember that no matter how many referendums we've had here, we had first one in 1967, then 1993, 1998, 2012, 2017. And although most of those have been very much in favor of statehood, those referendums really don't mean anything because the only people who can actually make a change in the status of Puerto Rico are not the Puerto Ricans themselves, but rather the United States Congress. People here are talking, that's all we can talk about is what's going to happen in Puerto Rico. But in the U.S., nobody talks about it. You know, we've never had a response from Congress after any of these referendums. So this is essentially what was happening in 1900. Really, not many things have changed since then. And I think that also highlights how much the idea of commonwealth and free association, like the real issue, it seems like from what you're saying is, a question of agency as opposed to like, well, what should we do? If we had this power, what would we do? It's like, why are we not in charge of this? Why is... Exactly. And the word self-determination is still very much the word that everybody centers yeah. on island. Now we're beginning to see it actually being spoken in in the in the US government with, I know, AOC and even I think Biden has mentioned that really what, what should happen is that Puerto Rico should be given the right uh, to self-determination, even if it's just by, you know, repealing the insular cases or repealing any act that's, you know, that clearly is an antiquated mm -hmm. reflection of colonial life. Th that hasn't been done since Puerto Rico has become part of the United States. So we just need people in the federal government to pay attention to us. And I think everyone is really hoping for that to happen in the next four years. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks to Kenny Noel, Marianne Tissot, and of course, Dan Valu. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at the all alone pod or email us at the all alone pod at gmail.com.